This is Geek Gab with your host, Darnall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, September 4th, 2021. Darnall, how was your week? Hey, man. Happy Labor Day. My week was all right. Uh, let's see. Of particular interest, I would say, is the fact that we shifted into second gear in the Combat Frame Exceed card game test. So we're gearing up for another big play test round this fall, maybe this winter. Uh, the downside is the craziness out there in the real world uh, with regard to pandemics, real and perceived uh, might complicate any um, big events, but uh, we've, we're setting up a system we can play test online. So that's good. Uh, so I've been working really hard at work and at play. Uh, that's that's all I've got to report for this week. How was your week? Um, you remember how last week I said I wanted to do a book review? Or yeah. how I wanted to like do some book reviews? Well, I read a book this week, and uh, I thought I'd review it next week uh, because uh, I don't think I'm going to have time this week. Uh, I hear, I have been told, it has been suggested to me that we have a, a guest this week. Yes, uh, I've been excited to get... Alex back on from Kursova. Hey, man, thanks for joining us again. Hey, guys, great to be here. Boo-boo. Um, I'll, I'll give you the spiel, just in case there's anybody listening later who has no idea what's going on. Um, you're an independent publisher who has been knocking out amazing sci-fi magazines for, the, for a few years, as well as, in my opinion, really cool custom projects dealing with lots of either indie authors or old public domain authors that are forgotten or nearly forgotten um tell me is that accurate scandalously yeah yeah forgotten we've, we've had a really really busy exciting year this year um <clears throat> it started a while back when uh Michael Tierney, who you guys know, we've done his Wild Stars uh, project. He also is a pulp historian, particularly focused on artwork. He did a massive four-volume set about the art and illustrations of Edgar Rice Burroughs' work. He's doing the same thing this year on the work of Robert E. Howard. He approached us a while back saying, would you be interested in publishing a project to restore a lost public domain science fiction novel from All Story Weekly? And I'm like, well, yeah, sure. Because, I mean, you know, we had a little bit of experience doing this with Illustrated Stark. And um, so one of his friends online had asked him about this one particular story that he had the artwork digitally restored on his website. And he's like, well, yeah, I've I've actually got most of that in the All Story Weekly serials. 
the story was The Cosmic Courtship by Julian Hawthorne, son of the much more famous and well-known Nathaniel Hawthorne, all-American writer, author of House of Seven Gables, Scarlet Letter, a bunch of stuff that people read in school and endlessly complain about. Well, it turns out that his son was an incredibly prolific writer in his own right. He was really interested in spiritualism, metaphysical stuff, and a lot of the fiction that he wrote could easily be sort of categorized as proto-weird fiction. But in 1917, a couple of years after All Story Weekly had been serializing Edgar Rice Burroughs' Barsoom stories, he decided to try his own hand at writing a planetary romance, The Cosmic Courtship. Well, we had a massive project to restore the cosmic courtship. We took the pulps, we scanned them. Uh, one of the guys on the project typed them all up. I went in, tried to get them as clean as possible. I'm sorry that there's still one or two typos that I wasn't able to catch, but uh, we got it in multiple formats, pocket paper book, trade paperback, hardcover, even a faux magazine re-release. And this is the first time this story has seen print since 1917 when it was serialized. It was a massive success for us, enough that we decided to start our own Persova Classics imprint devoted to restoring near-lost pulp classics. The retail version of The Cosmic Courtship came out on the 1st, and we fulfilled to all of our backers about a month and a half to two months ago, I believe. So that was the last big project. Because of the success and interest in that, we're like, well, why not finish collecting the rest of Julian Hawthorne's all-story weekly fiction? So we've got a really big ongoing project now on Kickstarter where we're taking pre-orders for The Strange Recollections of Martha Clem. Martha Clem was a pulp heroine that Julian Hawthorne concocted late in his career. The concept is she's sort of a, a modern, hip gal. She's she's probably a little bit pre-flapper, but she kind of presages that. But uh, she's the heroine of, or narrator of these sort of gothic adventures, romances, and horrors. The first one is a werewolf story. The second one is a South Seas adventure. And the third one is a metaphysical horror so bizarre that the editors of All Story Weekly could barely even describe it in their lead-ins. <laughs> awesome. also, we're also rounding out the project with two other of his standalone stories. It'll be collected in a third volume. So we've got three titles coming out in this project. One collects Absolute Evil and the Goth from Boston. Another collects Sarah Was Judith, which is a full-length novel. And the third volume collects the two standalone novellas, Doris Dances and Fires Rekindled. Wow. That's a... That is... Not having read the stuff, I'm just going to say that sounds like a treasure trove of old, crazy science fiction that sounds like nobody's read before. Yeah, it's it's really cool stuff. I've 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 kind of really gotten into Julian. I had I had I was barely aware that he existed before beginning this project. Not only have I read the stuff that we're publishing now, I went out of my way to read several of his other books and stories. I really enjoy his stuff. I know it's not for everybody. 
it it is going to be a little old because he he is sort of a, a connection between the the gilded age writers of the late 19th century with the early pulps because you have to understand the pulp stuff he was writing was really late in his career and but he was sort of rediscovered by All Story Weekly. The editors at that time really liked his stuff and sort of breathed new life into his career again after um, after his run-in with the, the fictitious Canadian mindshare that he was unwittingly made the public face of. This is, this is a fun, interesting little story about him. He was... Because his father was so famous, he was able to trade on his name and everybody wanted to talk to him because everybody wanted to know more about Nathaniel Hawthorne. And so that, that's part of how he landed so many gigs, not only as a writer, but as a journalist. And so in the early 20th century, uh, some less than savory entrepreneurs came to him and asked him to be the face of this uh, Canadian silver mining company. And well, because he was Julian Hawthorne, respected and beloved fiction writer and son of great American author Nathaniel Hawthorne, people trusted him. Unfortunately for the investors and for Nathaniel Hawthorne's son, Julian, the Canadian silver mine proved to be fictitious. And even though he said he didn't know anything about it, he ended up getting stuck with a sentence of a year in prison for mail fraud for having been a public face for this company. Oh man! And so, a after he got out, that that could be one of the reasons why he's more obscure. All Story Weekly was one of the few publications that was still really interested in him. So, he he sort of went from being persona non grata to having new life breathed into his career in the Muncie magazines. While we're not collecting all of the stuff from all of the Muncie magazines that he was published in, because he was published in a few besides All Story Weekly, we are planning on on covering all of the All Story Weekly fiction that he published from 1917 through 1920. That's a uh, that's amazing. Of course, it, I I just keep thinking of the Scarlet Letter, which is which is really bad association. Well, you you see, one one of the interesting things is is. Uh, Julian Hawthorne still works a lot with his father's uh, concepts of Puritan Calvinism and Calvinist doom. But, you know, in his story, instead of a Calvinist minister who is struck dead by God because he refuses to confess his sins in front of his congregation, he has a Calvinist minister who goes to the Orient, sells his soul to the devil turns himself into a werewolf and terrorizes the coast of New England. That's horrifying yes. and awesome. <laughs> that is the story Absolute Evil, which is the first one in the Strange Recollections of Martha Klimt collection that we're publishing. That's great. I, I love it. So I guess I'm sort of trying to form a narrative in my mind based on what you said. So this... This guy begins writing, I don't know what his fiction was like in his early days, but he's writing regular fiction. And then, well, he, I, I haven't read his earliest fiction, but uh, some of this fiction from, I think, the 1880s is collected in Six Cent Sam's. And a lot of that is even what would be considered prototypical science fiction or prototypical weird fiction with occult mystery, spiritualism, 
uh, out-of-body experiences, soul transference, reincarnation. So it's it's a real cultural phenomenon. Yeah, uh, yeah, because I mean, spiritualism was a huge, huge thing in, in the late nineteenth century. Wow, and so he put his and... yeah. Right. Yeah, and, I can uh, the, I can picture the old, you know, the old explorers in in the lodge in London talking about their adventures and yeah, trading and, in occult secrets. And uh it and uh well th- this is sort of a, an American version of that. In in his short fiction collection Six Cent Sands, it takes place in this sort of little supper club in uh I think it's New York, it may be Boston, but it, it takes place on a little supper club where people just come and share their weird stories with one another. And that that's the framing device, is there's the proprietor of the club who knows anybody who's got cool stories or weird goings on at the time in, in town. Oh, cool. But uh, the, the showcase novel for this new Kickstarter we're running is Sarah Was Judith. And the best way to describe it is an incarnation of Judith or an, an incarnation of Lilith is born in the form of this girl, Judith, who, when she dies, she takes over her mother's body because upon learning of her daughter's death, her mother commits suicide. And an hour after the mother commits suicide, she just wakes up and it's the daughter in the body, but it's clearly an incarnation of Lilith who wreaks havoc through her womanly ways and thoughtery, leaving a trail of death and destruction across Europe. While the old woman's husband is just sort of following after her, waiting to collect the remains of his wife once she's had her fun, quote unquote. Oh, and boy, it's, boy. it's just a really, really strange, strange story. I'm having trouble wrapping my head around it, but it sounds like if, I mean, there's a huge appetite for that kind of weird fiction, like the yeah, works of H.P. Lovecraft. It, it, start, it starts out as sort of a weird occult romance, but it ends up morphing into this really bizarre struggle between good and evil. Which is something you don't normally get. Go ahead. I'm going to say I'm sad, and I'll tell you why I'm sad. Is because fiction like that can only thrive when you don't have the solid uh, prescriptive walls around what fiction has to be what specific genres have to be. And I just think how awesome it must have been for writers that they could literally do anything they want. They didn't have any idea of, you know, okay, well, this is a monster story, okay? And and she's being possessed by this demon Lilith, and therefore, you know, and, here comes and all the- this trappings from the exorcist and and the thing is is it's it's never explicitly stated that it's lilith but the the language used to describe it it, there's no one that it could be but lilith by the end and it but you have to have that that groundwork that cultural framework to understand what's happening 
yeah, I just, I love the notion of writers being able to write whatever they want without, uh, without regards to rigid, you know, rigid walls around it. And, and I'm sad because we lost so much of that, that our writing today is just so much more than we, I think maybe realize until we start reading these really, really uh, old stories from turn of the century and before the turn of the century of, you know, the 20th century, turn of the 20th century that we start realizing, wow, these guys really could do anything they wanted. And sometimes it was incoherent crap, but sometimes it was absolute genius. Yeah. And, and another cool thing about this Martha Klim collection is each of the stories is a different genre, even the three that have the same narrator main character, because I mean, you have the werewolf story, which is clearly going to be a straight up horror. And then you have one that is, that's a South seas romantic adventure with only faintly implied weird metaphysical aspects to it to where it, it could be considered just a straight adventure romance. And then you have the third story, which which has literal demons and transference of consciousness, possible reincarnation. The devil himself makes an appearance. Crazy. And you know, and uh, and the other two stories we've got, you know, you have one that's just sort of a cozy little, almost Miyazaki esque romance. That, it, in some ways, it's kind of my favorite of the bunch because it's just so cute and heartwarming. Doris dances about is about this eccentric banjo playing millionaire, and his wife marries him because. She's from an old family with a good name and no money. He's from a mediocre family, but he's a new he's a new money millionaire. So she zeroes in on him to get his money and prestige. Well, he ends up adopting a little Asian orphan girl off the streets because he's like, I love babies, I want a family, and what what would happen if somebody else took this girl? What what's this girl's fate going to be? So his harridan treasure digging wife is like, you have to choose between me and the little orphan girl that you just adopted. So he gives up his millions and has a life on the road playing banjo with his little orphan girl. And they, they have cute <laughs> romantic adventures. They, they meet an artist and the, the man and the artist fall in love. And it's cute. It's adorable. It'd it make a, a great studio Ghibli movie. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm looking forward to checking those out. I, I'm gonna make a have a confession to make. I haven't been keeping up with uh, what the indie authors have been doing lately, um, and it's sort of coming back in after this summer to check in what everybody's doing. I, I'm completely blown away by the success you've had. Oh, thank um, you. I'm I, I and I really hope this next Kickstarter does even better than the last one. I guess my follow-up question for that is now that you've, you've got a lot of momentum behind 
your new classics imprint? Do you have your sights set on anything else? Like what's next for you? Uh, right now, Robert and Michael are going through their collections looking for, for what would be good. I'm kind of interested in maybe some Max brand stuff, but right now I'm, I'm going to leave the selection of fiction up to them because part of it is it's coming from their collection. These magazines cost between a hundred to 500 to even a thousand a pop. And so they're the ones who are putting the risk on their collection. They're the ones filling in the gaps in what they want. A lot of these stories are serialized over as many as five issues. So that's, Hmm. that's going to be a huge investment. It wrecks and devalues the pulp scanning them because you got to press them flat. They crumble. It's, it's, not good for the original materials to scan them so we're kind of sacrificing them so that they can be preserved for future generations which is one of the reasons why we're focusing on stories that have not been collected and and issues that have not had the scans publicly released got it a couple of the the julian hawthorne stories that we're putting out in this new one have been previous re- previously released uh Absolute Evil has been reprinted in several places, but we're collecting it for for completion's sake. Uh, You can find the first half of A Goth from Boston on archive.org. The second half is a lot harder to find, but you can find it on Luminist. But it's never been released in a single collected modern form before. But uh, the the big stuff that, that we've got going on right now besides that we just put out a new novel by Jim Brayfogle to keep his fans tied it over until we can get the next volume of Mongoose and Meerkat out. And we're aiming on getting that out sometime next year. Uh, we're also going to be collecting Wild Stars 5 next year while we're serializing Wild Stars 6 in the magazine. And in just under two weeks, we've got the fall issue coming out, which wraps up Wild Stars 5 the serialization of Bad Axe, and contains our latest Mongoose and Meerkat adventure from Jim Brayfogle. Oh, that's awesome. I, uh, we, had, uh, we had Jim Brayfogle on before when you did that first Mongoose Meerkat. Uh, he's, a, he's a super guy, and yeah, I really enjoyed his stories. Yeah, talk about Paths of Cormenor, which is a sort of take on the Swan Princess story, only uh, this one's sort of done as... In, as picaresque sword and sorcery fairy tale fantasy romance it's it's really good and uh, people may have slept on it because unlike mongoose and meerkat we were not able to get it fully illustrated but it's a great story i think people will will see that once once it gets in folks hands we just put in the order with our printer two days ago so we'll be fulfilling that kickstarter really soon oh cool do you have time for anything else, Alex? Did like a job, wife, whatever? Uh, I do have a day job, and I had to take a week long vacation from my day job this week so I could catch up on all the Krasova stuff I'm doing. Holy cow! Um, I maybe I only speak for myself, but uh, to have a to have a hobby that's so interesting and productive that that you're doing such great things that's a uh, that's pretty cool to hear. Um, I want to 
uh, of course, there's another reason we brought you on, but I want to get uh, yeah, any, anything else you want to talk about. to get all the shilling out of the way, but I, I know that the real reason that I'm here is for Jeffro Johnson's d d <laughs> game, Trollopolis, United <laughs> Cavemen Federation. United Cavemen Federation. Um, well, yeah, that's like I said. Uh, you know, like Shit I, posting I, so good, Jeffro had to write a book about it. Right. Holy <laughs> cow. Um you know, and and that's why I said that earlier. Like I'm, I'm just now, now that summer's almost over, catching up with, you know, what what have all the pulp rev and and my indie publisher friends been doing? Um, uh, Daddy Warpig, any other questions or comments on Cursova before we sh- switch to D and D? I'll be perfectly honest. I uh, I'm kind of wowed by all that stuff. I uh, I don't even remember right now. If I was part of the Kickstarter for uh, Hawthorne's book, so uh, while you guys were talking and I wasn't, uh, I jumped on Amazon and and bought the Kindle version of the uh, Cursova Classics Number One, and uh, I'm downloading it so I can read it. Awesome! awesome. Oh, thanks. I'm gonna... I, I am telling you the absolute truth because. I heard projecting minds to Saturn and, uh, and I just read this on Amazon and falling under the sway of an evil sorcerer while I was, you know, buying it. And I'm like, I got to get me some of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's in my Kindle program right now on my iPad, the cosmic courtship. So I may actually have been part of the Kickstarter. I may have actually. I'm pretty sure you so. were. I, uh... So I, I, I strongly recall, but you know, that's never going to stop Daddy Warpig from buying the same thing twice. Here. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That won't stop me from buying it twice, just in case, <laughs> or just because. <laughs> but yeah, it's in my Kindle now, so I want to read that because that sounds awesome. And so do, uh, so do, so does the werewolf story. I'm all over that. That is badass. <laughs> Heck yeah. But yes, uh, caveman stuff. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about the caveman. My goodness. I, I just, I just want to introduce my, um, my introduction to it was like a lot of other people's just to give people context, which is I, uh, I left Twitter a long time ago, but I, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, I wanted to catch up on what DW was saying, or maybe I was, I was wanted to catch up with guests, see what the guests are doing. Anyway, I ended up seeing these weird meme accounts, sort of hovering around Jeffro Johnson's um, account, and the the one, of course, that stood out the most was like everybody else, the United Caveman Federation, uh, just drug memes uh, themed for this D&D game that I know I knew I had been following Trollopolis on and off for a while, right? Just, oh yeah, you know, Jeff, Jeff Rose trying BX. Okay, Jeff Rose trying AD&D now. Okay, cool. Um, but what happened in July was something completely different. And, and we've spent like two hours already on the Geek App talking about it. But you, um, Alex, were the mastermind behind the the grug memes and i really want to know what your take is on all 
all of it because it's fascinating. Okay. Well, well f- first of all, disclaimer, uh, I can't be credited with the Grug memes themselves because, you know, it was all copy pasta. Like, I'd find relevant Grug memes for whatever was going on and just use them as my images. But uh, rewinding back to, I think, uh, late June, uh, Jeffro was wanting to do an experiment using faction-based patron play for AD&D 1E domains. And so he came up with just a list of faction patrons based on his Trollopolis game that he'd run, I think, last year mostly. There are something like 30-odd session reports up on his his website, probably more. But uh, he'd been running this game for almost a year, and it had generated what he he refers to as his his Malou. And anyway... The, the world that was created had all these different factions, and one of them was a group of cavemen. The faction patron was Ringo Starr of the cavemen, you know, of course, from the classic movie Caveman starring Ringo Starr. And when given a chance to pick out patrons to play, I'm like, yeah, sure, I'd, I'd love to play as Ringo. It must be said, I have to interject here. Um, for those of you who don't, who don't know Jeffro personally, that dude is a huge Beatles fan. <laughs> so, that makes this uh, so much better. So anyway, uh, all the all of the factions, to my knowledge, are based on the encounters tables from from Monster Manual and One E, and so each of my caves had something like a hundred cavemen with uh, the the different you have like a hundred basic cavemen and maybe a dozen fighter leveled cavemen whatever for some strange reason jeffro also decided to give me a bunch of cave bears and dinosaurs (laughs) the problem of course was the united caveman federation was spread out over six caves over a huge area where jeffro was using these 30 mile hexes so it took a ton of real world time since we're doing the one-to-one time for anybody to get in between the caves so i'm essentially stuck with this weird neutral faction that that can't do anything so i'm like well there's no point in me going to other places i'll just have people come to me so i just started shit posting with grug wojacks of the united caveman federation everybody's like wow that place seems really cool we should go visit there it yeah, worked. Of, yeah, and it worked. One, one of the first disasters, though, it started really early during patron play before we'd established the rules for how you were supposed to visit the Caveman Federation. Because, I mean, I, I eventually figured out this was going to be really tough to do if everybody just was like, hey, hit, hitting me up and asking questions about what was going on. So I set up the rules that if you wanted to visit the United Caveman Federation, you had to contact Jeffro and myself letting us know which cave that you were going to. But before we started doing that, the guy who was playing as Elric hit me up and said, like, hey, I want to start a, an alliance with the Caveman Federation. Why don't, why don't we set up a trade? And I'm like, sure, we'll trade uh, 7,000 gold pieces of ivory to you for iron weapons and women. He's like, okay, 
Well, while, while all that's going on, uh, people are starting to trickle into the United Caveman Federation to come visit. The first was a cleric who was trying to proselytize uh, the slacker god. And the cavemen are like, we, we don't need your god. There's the god who made Grug and God who provides for Grug. If your god's so good, prove it. And he failed to prove it as our cave bears tore him to shreds and left us with a really high-level cleric scroll that the Grugs couldn't use because Grugs cannot read. <laughs> After that, Fluid the Druid came to visit the same cave that the, that the other guy went to. So we actually have some cool cleric loot that we could offer Fluid the Druid to help us on one of our, our monthly great hunts to help replenish our ivory and food stores. So while Fluid is there bivouacking at uh, Cave, I think, four or five, I don't know, it, it was it was uh, uh, Cave F. Everybody had F names. It was the Cave of Fug, Chief Fud of Fug. So while <laughs> Fluid the Druid was bivouacking there, Elric shows up with his army. And we're like, he's not supposed to be here. He was, we, we told him to meet somewhere else. So everybody at Cave F is thinking like, uh-oh, we're, we're being attacked. We're being invaded. Meanwhile, because Jeffro's using one-to-one -one time, all hell is breaking loose in, back in Trollopolis because Elric went himself with, with the caravan. And so nobody's in charge. All the other factions are fighting over the city while Elric is there with his army out in the wilderness of the cavemen in the wrong place. And so he gets there. We're like, well, um, you could wait while we send somebody to Ringo to let him know that you're here. And I don't remember how many weeks of, of real life and in-game time it would have taken to get a messenger up to Ringo and get Ringo to come down and actually meet him. And so Fluid jumps the gun. He has call lightning down on Elric. We, we'd already prepared for a fight because we're like, well, he's going to betray us, so we're going to have all of our guys in position. So after he's made this big show and thrown Stormbringer onto the ground in front of him like he's there for a fight, and he's like, I'm here to trade. Well, it's too late. You already threw down your sword. You're posturing, and the druids already cast lightning. So all hell breaks mm. loose. Bears and cavemen attack his cavalry from both sides. Dinosaurs coming up the front. Elric gets mm. torn to pieces, just absolutely wrecked. This mm. is book Elric, too, from the deities and demigods guide mm. with like all the crazy powers, all the levels, all that stuff. Everybody wow. tells you, like, oh, a level 15 fighter could fight hundreds of so-and-so and be fine. Nah, it, Book Elric got torn to shreds. I don't I don't think we we suffered a single loss. Or, or at least if we did, Jeffro never told us about it. So uh, because of weird miscommunications, Book Elric, the prince of Trollopolis, got killed in the middle of nowhere. Nobody's able to find out about it because there's no messengers, no survivors, no news coming into or out of the Caveman Federation. The, the dinosaur jungles of the far north are basically an information black hole. Ugh. That is just so awesome. <laughs> 
completely unintended consequences of the it's like a- it's actions like of the game. We conducted the negotiations over Twitter. The, your quest log was in your DMs. How did you go to the wrong place? How did you take <laughs> an entire army to the wrong place? Oh boy! I, I thought I thought we'd been betrayed. No, I, I actually asked the guy playing Elric later. He's like, "Nah, I just forgot and sent my guys to the wrong cave." <laughs> oh, poor guy. And and so like. It, even Ringo didn't know what was going on technically because he he's like several days march to the north and and he finally got down there to the cave and finds finds cave F with all of this treasure all of these ruined iron weapons and all of these horses now so that's how it all went down yeah oh my goodness There's so much I need to understand about that whole situation, but your perspective really, um, really lets me know what happened. What what happened there? So yeah, what the- what ends up happening with the with faction and domain level play is that the patron characters and or player characters end up acting as de facto DMs for for lower mid level players who want to adventure in their realms. So, I mean, we, we were able to act sort of as quest givers as a source of information. Uh, we, we had a couple other uh, player characters who, who would come up and visit us and run into us. And we, we would either send them on useful quests if we had some work to do for them, or we would give them make work that we were pretty sure would get them killed and usually did. <laughs> like it, yeah, you know, if if the patron doesn't want to deal with a mid-level player, they'll send them off on a quest that they absolutely know will get them killed. If we have something useful for you to do, we will give you as much information as possible so you can go and accomplish whatever goal we as a patron player have for you. Perfect. So how did how did you guys get that information like as a player you don't often have i don't know how to put this like something that you care about like how what information did you have from the dm or or the other players like how do you get these quests to hand out i mean really all all we have are our own goals and interests with what our our factions are i mean i i've got a big sheet that just sort of lays out what the makeup of each of our caves is. And I know based on a rumor that Jeffro gave me that there was treasure in one lake. We haven't even had a chance to get to that. Spoilers, if anybody wants to come to the United Caveman Federation and help us find a treasure at some point, uh, feel free to brave the dinosaur-filled wastelands and get it for us. We, we might give you, I don't know, we might club you after you get it out of the lake for us. I don't know. Uh <laughs> I mean, people would come to us with their own interests and goals. Uh, The druids, of course, uh, are interested in the fact that we have a lot of weird animals here, including dinosaurs, and druids have generally been welcome. Clerics who've come proselytizing have been less than welcome because the Grugs do not need gods other than the god who made Grug and provides for Grug. How how much of that is is you, and how much of that is like your information sheet that you were handed by? 
Uh, it, it's mostly me, because, I mean, the information sheet is just the encounters table from the, the Monsters book. Wow. So, it, I mean, if you, if you look at an encounter table, or not, not just an encounter table, but if you, if you look at an entry in the Monster Manual, you'll see, all right, maximum appearing, and whatever their treasure would be, their, their hierarchy and organization, I mean, that's a faction right there in the book. Right. And, and so in, so what I'm trying to get my head around is that Jeffro didn't merely hand you guys, okay, well, this is, this is a, a patron in his motivations. It was more like, okay, this is what's in these hexes. You own these guys. Just run with it. Yeah, that's it. Wow. I mean, Holy some of the God. other guys in the city might have had a little bit more, but I mean, up in up in the wilderness with six different caves that were barely in communication with each other. I mean, that that's it. I mean, we we don't even have the logistics to to be a non-neutral faction. I mean, we couldn't send an army because if we got our grugs killed, there's no replacing the grugs and. You know, if if the Grugs are cozy and happy in their caves, they don't need to go down and attack Trollopolis. But if people want to to come see what the Grugs have to offer them, sure, come visit the Grugs. The Grugs can work stuff out. I mean, we we work stuff out with the Mushroom Men. The if if they want to set up fungal nodes, they can help us catch a mammoth or two, and we can give them an extra mammoth carcass that they can set up a fungal node in. We uh, we don't like the frogmen. We don't care for the sorceress. But you know, it's been a while since we've seen them, and we have no real reason to go out looking for them. Wow. Um. So how did that work out in in terms of like your gaming and in your satisfaction? Like as a player, would you would you like to do something like that again? Like, or, or is that a bad setup for a player who wants to actually engage with the game? I, I mean, it's been great for us, but it's it's kind of a weird phenomenon because playing on Twitter, we're able to to play whenever we want with a game that's always on, and we can sort of advertise for our domains both in and out of character a bit. So I it's it's going to be different from playing in person and taking breaks, even if you're using one-to-one time. The the fact that the game was always on and we had players all over the world made for some interesting situations and complications. But, you know, I mean, it, it, was, it was a lot of fun, you know. Playing D&D on Twitter, just as Gary intended. <laughs> right. Uh, and that's another aspect of it that was really strange to me, that it's sort of not the typical... But we think of, we were actually talking about this ahead of, before the show, like I really miss playing face-to-face. Yeah. And that's something, like this is deliberately made to not be that, which I thought was really fascinating. Well, and you know, I, I feel like if we were able to play face-to-face, we would play face-to-face as well. But this this accommodates a larger world for players who can't play face-to-face but can still incorporate those who do. Because, I mean, as far as I know, there's about to be another uh, Trollopolis game that's going to be a face-to-face normal, uh, well, not like in-person face-to-face, but 
screen time face-to-face game that uh, Brian Reniger's organizing for people who want to play in Jeffro's campaign at the the regular PC level as opposed to a patron PC level. Oh, cool. I need to get me some of that. Um, I've got some. I've got some other questions. DW, got a shot? You want to shoot before I get to those? Uh, I'm just <laughs> right. I'm still stuck on Elric throwing his sword in the ground and getting wiped. Okay. And <laughs> here's another thing that I think is important to point out: the stuff that people saw of the Trollopolis campaign is a lot of its show. And a lot of it's advertisement because underneath that and behind the scenes, we're actually playing AD&D. It, it's not just like the entire game is just shit posts on Twitter and posting memes. Like behind the scenes, we were actually crunching numbers. We were we were doing the stuff. We were rolling encounters. Uh, we were asking for adjudication on certain things. And um, when the battles happen, like I would give my plan, my battle plans over to Jeffro so that he could adjudicate them using chainmail rules. So I behind the scenes, behind all all the shit posting memes and grug wojacks, it was real D and D being played. But to to get an experience like that that generates that sort of content you have to have a foundational game behind it uh that sort of leads me to my one of my other questions which is how much did playing to that audience that twitter audience affect the gameplay or or were you were you influenced by the the audience factor um the, I think the only real influence in-game of the audience factor were the PCs who would see stuff and say, I want to go adventure there. Because, you know, it, it ends up being a competition for player interaction. When, when you're playing a game that's always on, winning is playing. So, like, the, the game is happening when you're not playing, but if you're playing, that's winning. So getting people who actually want to, you know, come and play, that's, that's, that's fun. That's where the fun comes from. And so by creating a place that people wanted to actually come and adventure, that gave us a chance to play with other players. It gave us a chance to, to run some battles. It gave us a chance to kind of de facto DM for some lower mid-level characters from Jeffro's campaign. And, you know, it, it was a lot of fun. And and so your play worked, in other words. You were able to... Um, the Your play of getting people involved in Twitter actually gave you players to play with. Yeah. In the game. Um... And you you were really busy at the time, and you were only playing on Twitter. But how much time per day did you play, or or week? Like, is it is it X amount of hours I, I a week? Couldn't, or I couldn't give you an estimate. I really couldn't. Wow. Um, well, because okay. I mean, you know, it, it's always on. It's something in the background that you know I could just tab into at any time, and you know, check and see if one of the other players had DM'd me, or if 
just, you know, while I'm doing my other stuff, I could, I could look in and be like, well, what's going on in Trollopolis? Is anything going on today? And it, it was all in DMs, right? There's nothing. There's nothing that we saw that we could pick up on. It was. It was all just message. A new message from Jeffro. Okay, let's go. Yeah, every, everything of the actual game and gameplay is completely behind the scenes. The the Twitter stuff is essentially just the rumors table. You know, uh, Jeffro turned his official his account into an official rumor table and news table for the the campaign setting. And I was kind of doing my own because, like I said, the the Caveman Federation's an information black hole. Like nobody was going into the Caveman Federation, coming back alive to report any information. So you know, it was just completely wild rumors that there were cavemen up there. Gotcha. Like, to visit them. <laughs> no, from a player perspective, since you're, since you're starved for player interaction and you've gone through all these great lengths to get all these people in there what was how valuable was it to get information um or another way to put it like what was the effect of the fog of war where the effect of the fog of war was huge overall in the game but i don't think it affected the caveman federation as much because like i said we're i mean we're cavemen we we weren't going to be going on any conquering escapades we weren't really at war with anybody we were, we were just kind of there you know and so uh the 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 big thing i think information wise was was that uh, there, there was stuff to do in the Caveman Federation. And when people went into the Caveman Federation, information stopped coming back from them. Because if you were paying attention, like, as soon as Elric left, I mean, he, he was gone for a long time, and all hell was breaking loose back in the city, at least according to Jeffro's official Trollopolis News Network feed. Mm. But... Uh, I mean, we would find things out from people who came to visit us, but we there wasn't a lot of information we really had to send back. One of the things, though, that, that I kind of figured out based on the month of play is the value of the Diviner class in AD&D. Because, you know, you always hear like, oh, the Divination School of Magic sucks. You know, you don't want to have a player character pick a Diviner. Like, a Diviner is going to be useless. What? All the Divination spells are stupid. You need to have a Diviner in your campaign, but they need to be an NPC because they're not going to be able to adventure. Based on our experience on this, player characters who would run Diviners would be able to power level super fast. Because think about it. Everybody needs information. Everybody needs to know what's going on in the other factions, what's going on in their own factions, where the treasures are, where certain PCs are going, what they're doing. And people who have access to divination spells, they can pretty much name their price. A patron player would go to a, a player character who had a diviner and be like, okay, I need to know X. Like, well, okay, for so much gold, I'll tell you X. And if you're using GP for XP, the diviner character is able to get XP for every time they charge somebody to cast a divination spell and give them that information they need. So you'd have these, these magic user characters who are basically power leveling as 
high level characters just keep forking over gold for them to act as sort of telephone operators for the world. That's fascinating. Um, I, I mean, I I've got two reactions to that. About, Go ahead. I want to see this about your question. Um, the Caveman Federation wasn't affected by the fog of war because the Caveman Federation was the fog of war. Yeah, we, we were the fog of war. The, the, ca the right cave didn't know what the left cave was doing. Heck, Ringo... Did, I, I played it so that Ringo didn't know what the hell was going on with Elric. We we had to send runners from the cave that Elric showed up to to let them know that not only had Elric shown up, but later that Elric had been completely wiped out. And so Ringo had to turn his entire convoy to the south, and it took weeks for him to get down to the cave to find that his ally had already been massacred. <laughs> wow. Um, odd. I, I just want to, I'm going to track down Jeffro and get all of his notes. I want to know what the heck is going on inside that head. Well, pretty soon, uh, as soon as I get some time, I'm going to try to write up a tell-all of the United Caveman Federation, which will basically just be a blog post of what I've told you guys, but I'll also post our faction notes. Oh, I'd love to see that. Because, I, that's that's sort I mean, of inside I, baseball. I, I have a I have a player sheet, basically, that, you know, if I stuck some drawings of a caveman on it, I could sell it as an OSR module. And all it is is just a list of some numbers, names for cavemen, and, you know, just a setup of what their patrol structure looks like. <laughs> um, I think, wow, I've got a lot of, I got a lot of reactions to that. Let me see. Um, I think it speaks a lot to the, power of a well-written module and not in the sense of with with good narrative or or style or anything like that but just a module that gives you really all the information you need to do the nuts and bolts of the game because that gives you all the food you need the fodder you need for your creative expression you know you've if if you you slap a cave like you said slap a caveman meme on you know here here are these three hexes these are the caves this is the information these are the encounters that are in the area that's it you can drop it into your game anywhere you just, you just, you just put the numbers there and you know when when jeffro gave me my my character faction information I, I, there were no named characters there was just a list of like well okay there are a hundred normal cavemen. Each one has like 10 to 20 uh, F3 leveled cavemen and uh, six or seven F4 cavemen. And each cave is led by one F5 caveman subchief. And, you know, from that, I'm like, well, I'll give everybody names. And I named them like A to, a to Z. So, since everybody kept showing up at uh, at Cave Six, which was Cave F, so it was Bug. All the guys had F names. All the guys <laughs> in the first cave had A names. Second cave all had B names. And like Jeffro didn't give me any of that stuff. I just like wrote all that down so that if anybody showed up, like it wouldn't just be like you're meeting random caveman twenty four. Right, right, and and that's that's where the being a DM comes into play where the, the DM doesn't have to be part of that 
information or, or conversation. Yeah. It's yeah, just and, like, and by the time that the that the second adventuring PC hit Cave Six, those cavemen were were actually characters at that point. You know, they they kind of had a little bit of information behind them based on the last interaction, and so based on the subsequent interactions, you know, you sort of have an idea of who, who these people are. The other caves that nobody's been to yet, they're still just kind of kind of nebulous, whatever cavemen. Wow. Um, I think, I, it's been said before, but I think you guys really caught on to something. It's, uh, Jeffro claims it's the way, you know, real D&D, a lot of people are skeptical about that, but it is definitely what I can say with certainty is it appears to be something that is a slightly new form of play or a rediscovered form of play, if you will, that is a natural consequence of the way you guys played it. And I would and, love to try that. I would love to see how that is bread is made and, and you know, share the I recipe. Think- I think in a pre-computerized environment before everybody had smartphones, everybody was playing video games, everybody was just on their computer all the time. I think you actually could have had something like this if people were just playing every day. Not not everybody in the group playing every day, but some of the people from the group playing some of the time, all of the time. And you would have something that would work out like this because once once you got those high level characters who'd established their domains the way that the book says, you know, once you hit name level, to to deal with those other issues that you know might be small for a lord of a castle that you could give the the new people who wanted to play something to do you you'd become the the quest giver, so you end up with sort of a tiered system of people who are players but they're also dms to other players within the campaign with the blessing of the uber dm who sort of serves as the master referee for the entire campaign and what jeffro did really was sort of an experiment to kickstart a campaign to that point where you had those high level players controlling domain factions to see how they would interact with one another and how they would interact with normal lower to mid-level player characters. Uh, and that's a great point that he started at the top, like as, as if you would make high-level characters. And instead of making 16th-level characters and going and slaying dragons, uh, how about you make a 16th-level lord and deal with these problems and raise entire armies? Um, not the sort of yeah. game that I grew up on. And you know that... I'm, I've been replaying Neverwinter Nights lately, just you know, sort of to to re-experience that period in D and D history. And I think that the point where D and D went wrong is because it became a Diablo clone. So you have these fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth level characters who are crawling through sewers, doing like scuddy, scuzzy dungeon crawl finish the story quest type adventures when characters that powerful should have been, you know, they should have been lords with armies dealing with their own problems. So at the same time, to make it challenging for the 15th, 16th, 17th level character who is crawling through a sewer, they throw them up against 
14th, 15th, 16th level mooks who, you know, they should be their own lords and kings with their own army, but instead they're just mooks hanging out in a sewer to be a challenge for your 17th level mook in a sewer. And so that's what D&D became when it tried to go after the skeleton clicker bucks from Diablo. They built a tabletop system around a video game that couldn't come anywhere close to delivering the sort of gaming experience that Dungeons and Dragons was originally designed to deliver. And and part of the reason too is, you know, in the Forgotten Realms, there's no place to have people set up their own, you know, domain or kingdom or whatever. It is wall to wall stuff. You literally cannot find a place in the Forgotten Realms that isn't uh, covered with a kingdom and doesn't have something there that's already been covered in some book or some manual, uh, some manual or some module. Well, and I even picked the biggest patch of nowhere I could find in the Forgotten Realms to run a three. Campaign in a third edition campaign, and this particular patch of nowhere, I found out that the bridge in the middle of town that I picked had been the climactic scene for the death of a god in uh, the time of troubles in the changeover from second to third edition. Some god had died there and turned the river black and poisonous for all of eternity. Yeah, but even if even if you're not using a setting, the mechanics of the game set up a different expectation because they they were going for a different feel. They were yeah. wanting to do a smaller, claustrophobic, dungeon crawl type game because that was what they saw was popular through the success of Diablo 2. And so in trying to make Dungeons and Dragons like Diablo 2, they squeezed everything down into these tiny cramped areas where you couldn't have big sprawling battles with huge armies. So to compensate for that, you're just big strong guys going punch face against other big strong guys toe to toe in the sewers. And people come into Dungeons and Dragons with that experience and with a system that is designed to deliver and enhance that experience because they wanted the CRPG experience to to match what was at the table and vice versa. And so I, I always hear these problems of people who are trying to DM 3E. And a problem that I experienced myself was that because you're essentially trying to run a really claustrophobic CRPG as a tabletop game, you have all these numbers to crunch and it takes forever to, to come up with content. The stat blocks are so much bigger and you got to come up with like the challenge ratings for every little thing because nobody is expecting to have just you know a normal D&D adventure they're they're expecting like the Neverwinter Nights type experience the Knights of the Old Republic type experience because that game used that same system they're they're expecting something completely different and it just doesn't work the same it's so radically different 
and this is old news, really. It's yeah, it's very old it's, news. It's, it's twenty-year-old it, news. Like you can't replicate the computer RPG experience on the tabletop. That's I mean, but first they, of all, you're making they, a circle. They tried really hard to, and in some ways, succeeded for the worst. Yeah. Um, uh, I want to shout out to chat because chat's been awesome and they've been talking about their own games and experiments all day. Um, but I mean, it's, we, we've made this point a bunch of times, but yeah, you, you can't in third edition and later forgotten realms. You can with first and second, maybe. And I think that holds true for D and D overall. Um, I love 3.5. I, I think it's a really fun system, but it is a very spreadsheet nuts and bolts system. But when you're talking about, like in the case of the diviner class, right? Once you take away the gold per XP idea and you take away the idea that you can gain experience by being successful at what it is your class is for, right? Uh, a wizard is not going to get XP for defeating monsters in melee. He's going to get XP for defeating monsters and gaining treasure through magical spells, right? Yeah, and, and three, you only get experience for killing monsters and completing quests. Exactly. Once you get into that mindset, and then that's where you get that diviner mindset that you talked about before. Why would you ever play a diviner? That's an NPC. And you provided the perfect example of why that's not true in those editions. It's just a different game. If if you can change your mindset and be like, all right, I'm playing D&D instead of having this idea that D&D is this one thing. Um, and I, I know I keep banging on this, but if you look at 3.5 and later as a superhero game or, or a Diablo clone, then you can have tons of fun with it. But it's, it is like, as you said, it's really onerous on the DM to make sure that all the challenges are appropriate for your level and so on and so forth. Um, for example, I'm going to give an example because you've triggered my uh, D&D PTSD with 5th edition, um, which is a, a it's a very fun superheroes game. It ain't D&D, but I had a I had a diviner in that game, sort of. Uh, I played the Warlock class, which was a, the is the quintessential 5th edition game or 5th edition class. And I stuck to almost all divination spells. And because of the rules of the system, I as long as as long as the character had time, I could trivialize any encounter through use of clairvoyance. Because the warlock will get his spells back. He only has like two spells, but he gets it back after a short rest. So if I have a day to prepare, like okay, you guys all go get your equipment. I'm going to spend the day in the in in my hotel room, and I'm going to scry every square foot of the dungeon before we go in and they're like what yeah so i'm going to use that i'm going to spend 20 minutes using my scrying spells and then i'm going to take an hour nap or i'm going to read a book for an hour or something like that as soon as those spells come back repeat not only do people think that's boring like do people think winning is boring i didn't get a lick of xp for it other than to you know make the following encounter not quite trivial, but increase the chances of success up to like 100%. Like you, you, if you tried to do some of those things in the newer editions, you'll run into rules like that that say, oh, 
is a diviner really valuable? Well, guess what? I can just be a character that will trivialize any encounter once right. I hit See, like here, fifth here's, level. Here's the thing, too. If you're playing a game with one-to-one -one time, you could do that during your downtime so you're not choking up like dungeon crawl playtime with doing all your divination spells. Yeah, I think, uh, and and someone doing one-to-one -one time with a fifth edition game will likely run into a power gamer of that type and say, hey, actually, the way these rules interact with each other, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sit in my room, drink tea, and scry my ban ass. the diviner. He's OP. Right. Yeah. You know, don't ban, don't ban the, the you know, the uh, the assassin, 150 damage per round guy. Don't ban the two-handed weapon specialization. Yeah, it's all it's all great to be able to do that much damage, but the warlock already won while you guys were running around in the dungeon. The the main thing I experienced in the few times I played 5e is that you know it's it's a punch face game. Like it feels like the Superman Doomsday fight where like you keep hitting each other for max damage, but you're still standing. But it's like I'm an orc barbarian. You're a druid. I should not have been able to crit you in the face with my axe three times. And you, and the DM's like, oh, he's he's looking a little winded now. Oh yeah, like it, it's such a high HP game. Oh god. Uh, that that is how it feels, which is fine. But it, it it's it's a it would be a great cape game. Play it is or or it just a league. It would be great for that, but it does not feel like Dungeons and Dragons at all. It's not give no. a D and D experience. No, at least and, not, and at least not the times I've played. I've played with a few different DMs. It it is it is a fantasy themed superhero game. I would love to do a one to one time game in it, but yeah, you might have to ban, you might have to ban classes that really abuse the short rest system, which is the thing that makes D and D five really stand out from the others. So, um, I don't know. I I, I guess I got on that tangent just because. Like, I mean, the and the funny thing is, is the short rest thing was a video game feature from Neverwinter Nights. I mean, you because it was all just Diablo crawling through the sewers, you know, your guy wasn't going to go back to town and go into the inn. Like, no, your person was going to, like, press the rest button and, like, sit there for a minute while all of his spells and crap recharged. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very strange. Yeah, you. so, yeah, you can't go back from computer video games back into RPGs, or that's what you get. Uh I guess that's where I got on that tangent. Anyway, um, really, really fascinating stuff. I think we're going to learn a lot. I can't wait to find out. I, I would love to read your tell-all blog. I want to know what Jeffro's going to come out with. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm looking forward to Jeffro's book. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna try to get you guys all back on together just to have you Ooh. guys talk with each other about it. But I make no promises. I just, I just would love to have you back to talk about that with the rest of the guys. Uh, and just see, because I don't know, you guys have been working with Twitter and everything, but have you guys all sat down in the same room and just talked about what happened? Uh, not not all of the, the patron players, because several of the patron players were brought in from outside of uh, our various groups. Okay. I, I know that some of them are in are, uh, people who are part of the, the Bro SR and our uh, little inner circles and whatnot, but we, we got some new people too. Well, cool. Yeah, we're gonna have to organize that if uh, we want to do it. Jeffro just uh, 
He DM'd me on Twitter and said he hadn't been able to get people to get together. So he tossed okay. that back in our laps. Well, we'll we'll have to we'll have to get some contact in from from you and everybody else, and and we'll we'll try and put that together. Uh, I I don't know if it's going to happen, but I do promise we will try to put that together. Uh, All right. I would love to do that. Um, I I've. I've run out of questions. I really just want to log off and start a D&D game. But <laughs> um, Daddy Warpig, what else you got? Um, actually, I don't, I don't really have any questions at this point. Uh, I, uh, I'm excited for the Kickstarter. I really hope it goes well. I'm looking forward to more uh, Julian Hawthorne stories. Although, again, I haven't been able to read the first one yet, but it's in my Kindle. In the queue. All right. In the queue. Okay, Alex, uh, the floor is yours. Anything else you want to talk about or shill before we go? No, I just wanted to say thank you guys for having me on. Uh, check out The Cosmic Courtship out now on Amazon. The Paths of Cormenor from Jim Brayfogle will be available for pre-order physical soon. Uh, the ebook should already be up there. The fall issue of Kursova is going to be coming out in just under two weeks. And we've got the strange recollections of Martha Klim up on Kickstarter right now. And the link should be here in the bottom of the video. Got all those links in the description. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I, I really hope that those things, you knock those Kickstarters out of the park because uh, you're doing great work with the indie publishing scene. And I'm always excited to see what your next project is. Um, I, uh, for myself, uh, thanks for coming on. Daddy Warbreak, thanks for being the hostest with the mostest. And uh, I'm, I, I didn't do a full shout out to chat today, but I'm really happy for all you guys coming in. Lots of chatter about D&D uh, &D and your own stories and campaigns. And I love the amount of excitement we have among our unusually intelligent and attractive audience. Uh, I'm done for today. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope everybody listening live or listening later uh, really enjoyed uh, Kursova's recount of uh, his most eventful summer. Um, but I'm signing off for today, Daddy. War Pig, take it all away. All right. Um, oh. I, uh, I'm going to make this short. Um, I uh, want to thank everybody for coming and listening to the show. Chat has been awesome today. Uh, that, that was my job while, uh, while they were discussing things is I got to keep track of chat and jump in and participate a little bit. I want to thank everyone who listening live and uh, thank everyone who listened later, folks. Just a quick reminder, you can get us just about every week, just about the same time, which is 2 p.m. Eastern on YouTube.com slash GeekGab. That is YouTube.com slash GeekGab. Or you can uh, check us out on the Google Play Store, on SoundCloud.com, and on the iTunes Store. Just do a search for GeekGab. We are signing out for today, folks. But don't you worry. Don't you fret. We... We'll be back.